Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager, and this is a podcast about books and the people who read them and write them and love them. And today's podcast is a special one. Um, I, I say that often, but I'm very excited about today's guest. Nikki Gemmell is the author of over a dozen novels and half a dozen uh, books for children uh, and some nonfiction, um, including her most um, recent work, After. Uh, Nikki is an international bestseller and her books have been translated into 22 languages. Her new novel is called The Ripping Tree. Nikki, it is a pleasure to have you with oh, us. It's lovely to be here, Ben. Thank you. Um, it's been a long time. How you been? <laughs> no, it has been a long time. This latest book has taken me 10 years. I've been busy and life has just crashed into everything. I've, I've lost both my parents. That mm. was traumatic. I, I had another baby. So it's like I always tried to finish this book and then everything else happened. A lot of life happened. Yeah, I got diverted into non-fiction and children's fiction, but this one wouldn't let me go. Oh, I'm glad we have it finally. <laughs> so it's called The Ripping Tree mm. and it's published by Fourth Estate, which is um, an imprint of HarperCollins. And um, Nikki, uh, HarperCollins, uh, the sales team there, they do this Herculean job where um, the sales guys come out uh, and they have to talk to all the book retailers like me and they have to explain dozens upon dozens of books um, in very quick succession. And uh, they sort of started explaining this new Nicky Gemmel book and it was going to arrive before Mother's Day. And it uh, was about a, a shipwrecked woman um, in colonial Sydney. And I'm thinking, yes, oh, this ticks all the boxes of <laughs> great women's fiction. Um, but then as soon as I spent any time with it, it, it became something else entirely. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, something far more... Um, deceiving and and um, unsettling, mm-hmm. um, and you can get that from its glorious cover, which we've been talking about, and uh, its intriguing grab line or, or strap line: "Get out before they save you." Mm. Ooh, like, <laughs> uh, what are we in for with this thing? Uh, well, I wanted to write. I, I love um, challenging myself, and I'm a restless writer. And with this one, I wanted to write a thriller, a page turner. But I, as with a lot of my writing, I like asking difficult questions too. So floating around the ripping tree was uh, things like uh, Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, the film Get Out, which is like uh, a stranger in a strange land and they have to escape um, an environment that's alien to them that they think initially is very friendly and inviting and then realise that it's actually threatening their life. So that was the premise of The Ripping Tree too. It's a woman who's shipwrecked in colonial times. She's the only survivor. It could be colonial Sydney, but it could be, you know, the coast of Tasmania or WA. That is unspecified, but basically she uh, comes to this big, illustrious house uh, through the help of an Indigenous man She arrives in the midst of this family and initially she's like, this is fabulous, wow, I'm saved. And then gradually it's like the walls and the claustrophobia close in on her to the point where it's like she has to get out or, you know, she she might lose her life. 
or her sanity. So I, yes, I wanted to write a thriller that was very unsettling, that also is provocative, because a lot of my work, fiction and non-fiction, has been very provocative. I've had a ball, but it's taken me a while to get here. It certainly has. Let's, so let's start with this woman um, who goes by names. <laughs> <laughs> She's Tom Tomasina, and then her nickname is Poss. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, she's she's on the cusp of womanhood. Mm -hmm. She's an orphan girl. She's shipwrecked. She has the chance to make a new life for herself, mm. um, and she brings this new perspective into this colonial place. It's mm -mm. Um, it's got all these tropes almost of uh, what, for lack of better language, we would just call historical women's fiction, a mm -hmm. woman's story. Um, I, is that something that you're writing uh, self-consciously and trying to subvert? Because this, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not a, a wonderful romance, is this thing? It's, it's the, <laughs> shit happens, Nikki. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, you're allowed to swear. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the 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 book is about a woman finding her voice mm. or losing her voice because of circumstances around her. It's it's you know, it, it's political fiction as well. Yeah. Um uh, you know, I'm interested in power dynamics and I've always been interested in female confidence and uh, how women gain confidence, how women lose confidence. I've also, I've always been interested in writing very, very honestly and because I think honesty connects and I can still do that through historical fiction. So I wanted to write about a protagonist who is very relatable, uh, in a very honest way I wanted to write about her and I wanted to write a heartbreaking story as well mm. um, in terms of this book. Uh, but there's optimism and light there too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's got it all. Um, uh, tell me about the, the family she encounters because they are, they are some interesting people. Uh, maybe start with the mother. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So th this is a family of all boys mm. and I can relate to this in a way because I have three sons um, and I also eventually got a daughter, but there, there was a yearning within that world, my beautiful boys, to balance out the family somehow. So I took that to the nth degree in terms of a mother who is desperate for a daughter after having all these sons, and then this young woman, this 16-year-old, arrives on her doorstep, and this is an older woman who sees kind of someone, almost like a Pygmalion story, someone to mould, um, and it's how that can go very, very wrong when two strong females clash and uh, come up against each other and each is trying to establish dominance over each other. So I was interested in her. This is basically a family that um, is at the dark heart of Australia. Mm. And, you know, there, there's a lot of questions raised, being raised now about, you know, our Indigenous past, the brutality at the heart of our Indigenous past. I, I wanted to dive straight in there. This is a family with, you know, a veneer of respectability. Everyone in, in the wider world looks up to them. Um, they're very illustrious, very successful. But it's like, how did they make their money? And what's the secret at the heart of that beautiful house that they live in? <laughs> yeah. And, and the 
the the people with it, I, I also think of this as a, a book about the loss of innocence. Yes. Um, particularly with the youngest son. Yes, yes. Mouse. <laughs> Mouse, the little boy who's about six or seven, yeah. Uh, you know, there's all these things going on around him which he doesn't really understand, but th this is a thriller. There is a dark secret at the heart of this family and I, d I don't want to do spoilers here, It, you know, Mouse is at the centre mm. of this secret and this world. And it's how traumas can kind of reverberate through generations and how they can damage people, you know, in terms of what Mouse has perceived, what his parents have done, what his older siblings have done, how it impacts upon that tiny little boy and that tiny little body. It's, um, yeah, I wanted to write something challenging in yeah. terms of Australian fiction. I wanted to maybe lull readers in in terms of, you know, it is a thriller, it's an historical thriller. It's, it is it is perhaps all those tropes but then go bang underneath. There's something much darker and unsettling that, you know, I hope provokes questions about, you know, land and ownership and control and power all yeah. those kind of things. And how our illustrious colonial history comes to be. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, um, I think especially with this boy, uh, the, the heartbreak of this novel sets in because there's so much joy and so much wonder mm. from which the the main character, Poss, just she milks that out of him. Yes, and, yes. And he kind of breathes life back into her after being shipwrecked and yes, completely yes. abandoned. Um, uh, and and you you see that corruption in real time. Did you did you look at your own sons when you were <laughs> crafting these boys and then destroying them? <laughs> destroy them. Funnily enough, I, I did look at the beautiful wonder and innocence of my own youngest little boy who's just got this big wide open heart and is so tender and so affectionate. And I, you know, as a mother, you want to preserve that. It's so beautiful and you want to make that flower. Um, and I see, you know, that in my older boys, they went through dark periods of their adolescence, but now I've got them back. <laughs> They've come back. And so I wanted, I, I wanted to, to capture that in fiction, that, the, the beauty of the soul of a, of a young boy, that, that wide open innocence. Um, I wanted to explore that. And also the lovely way he has of relating with other people and with someone who he sees as a playmate too, you know, a young woman. This is a lonely boy who's, you know, out in the middle of whoop whoop, doesn't have other young kids around him. He wants a playmate and he sees someone who he can draw into his magical world. And then the person that he's drawn into his world suddenly starts backing away and going, whoa, there's something deeper and darker underneath all this. And the little boy is desperate to retain them. Um, so I wanted that tension within the book as well. Mm, tension is the word for it. <laughs> um, okay, so, so how, do you, how do you approach writing a novel about colonial Australia? Um, <laughs> as a white author uh, in your mm. writing about um, white characters, the British colonisers, who are having their own experiences and interpretations of 
Indigenous Australia, the original Australians. How do you how do you approach that? <laughs> well, first of all, I knew I absolutely could not write from the perspective of an Indigenous Australian at all. And I guess uh, in the epilogue, uh, there's a woman uh, talking about uh, an earlier part of her life. And she says in that epilogue, in terms of Indigenous Australia or Aboriginal Australia, or the natives, as she called it in those days, which was the term then, you know, I absolutely respect but I do not understand and that was the position that she took as the um, protagonist narrator of the story and that was the position I took too. I absolutely respect, I'm fascinated by but it's not my story to tell from their perspective. And I had a wonderful sensitivity reading by uh, John Maynard, Professor John Maynard, who's up at the University of Newcastle. And he was great. He loved the book. He suggested a few tweaks. I loved the back and forth between us because I was just all ears. I was just drinking up his suggestions, what he was saying, you know, things to tweak, things to remove, things to add. He gave me ideas for um, Indigenous names. I loved all of that. I felt like I was learning so much as I was writing. And in fact, with all my writing, my non-fiction as well as my fiction, my columns, I write a, a weekly column as well, I write to understand. I write, you know, I ask questions. It's like, but how does that work? What I, I need to know more about this. I need to understand. And that's where everything begins with me in terms of my fiction and my non-fiction. So I was writing this story of colonial Australia, a story of survival. I was writing once again to understand. And when you, when you approach that, um, how, how do you avoid anachronism? Or, or, do you just, or do you just accept that it's part of the journey and that you know you emphasize the the fiction in historical fiction uh, how do you mean about did you do i avoid like cliche or or, or, or bringing a, a a 21st century mindset to a, a book that is uh, set in, a, in another time uh, yeah well it's it's hard because you've got a modern sensibility to it but i think what i do with all my fiction, um, because some of my kids' fiction has been historical too, um, you write from a perspective of honesty, of what feels like an authentic experience. And so with whatever I do, whether it's set now, whether it's set, you know, 200 years in the past, I always think, does this ring true? Yeah. Does this feel authentic? And so that's my tuning fork for my fiction and also my non-fiction, for everything I write, is this true? Is this honest? And in addition to the sensitivity reading, which sounds brilliant, um, uh, what, what, other, what other things did you do to research this book or to immerse yourself in the kind of place you wanted to write about? Well, I went down to Tasmania. I went up to Macquarie. I went to places where there, there's still a heavy convict presence. Mm. I went out to St Albans um, and the Hawkesbury. I immersed myself in those places. I stayed in, you know, old sandstone courthouses. I visited old colonial mansions just to get, you know, what it was like to see how tall the ceilings were. Or um, in the case of an old colonial courthouse I stayed in, you know, notice little things like the um, a watch house or a jail house, the doors to the cells were so narrow because people just weren't larger. Mm. In the, they weren't obese. Yeah. And so, you know, it was like the doors could be 
much, much narrower than, you know, what they are now. Just little things like that. Or, or you know, I, I slept in a swag in front of a wide colonial hearth and it was like, you know, just the breadth of that fire, you know, that was like, you know, that, that informed my book because there's a few scenes in The Ripping Tree the set in a colonial kitchen and, and, you know, things like that. I did a lot of reading, a lot of reading about um, shipwrecks, uh, you know, accounts of shipwrecks or convict times. I, I researched uh, colonial menus, you know, because there's a few scenes set in a dining room in the Ripping Tree. So it's like, well, what would they be eating? So I went back, you know, and, and, and discovered food and meals that I didn't even know what that meant. But, you know, it's all in the book, basically. That's terrific. Um, okay, so what do we want to achieve with this novel? Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, provoking or, or ruffling <laughs> the, the feathers of your readers. Yes, yes. Uh, um, what, are you, what, what are you trying to provoke? Well, I, I guess mainly what I want to achieve is, achieve is that I want it to be a page turner that people feel like they can't put down and hopefully stay up all night wanting to finish it. and I'm wanting happy to second that. <laughs> <laughs> and wanting to find out, you know, if Poss escapes and how does she escape and what happens and does she discover the heart, you know, the, 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 the horror at the heart of this family. Does she find out what really happened there all those years ago? Um, and then around that... I just want to achieve a book that stays with people in terms of they may think about Australia and its past in a different way or uh, a fuller way or a more honest way. I want this book to provoke questions, which is what I guess I've wanted with so much of my fiction from... The Bride Strip Bear through to After, through to, you know, like my, my first novel, Shiver, it was all about getting people to question what they think they know. So I'm still continuing on that path. You know, my book after this one is a journey again. It's always different. I feel like every book I write is a reaction to the previous one. But that's that's the joy of being a writer. You know? <laughs> I love that so much. I feel so fortunate. <laughs> oh, we're fortunate to have you. I uh, can we can we talk about after for a second? Sure. Um, so that that was your last book before mm-hmm. this is a work of nonfiction. Um, it's this uh, very honest and moving memoir of the death of your mother and its aftermath, um, and that raised challenging questions mm. about the taboo of. Uh, end-of-life care and death mm-hmm. and uh, euthanasia, assisted Suicide. dying, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it got a lot of attention. I remember you did Australian Story. There were a mm. lot of tearful interviews um, and it all looked utterly exhausting for you, I'm sure. <laughs> um, now we've moved all these years on. Yes. I can only imagine, I wonder about all the readers you've reached with that and the yeah. conversations you've had and, and how does it feel to have a few years between yourself and that book now? Um, I, I, I feel like it's always a privilege to communicate with my readers. It always feels like, wow, it, it's so humbling that I've moved people in some way or that they feel compelled to respond in some way. And, and so many people with After had their own stories, their own stories about uh, suicide, 
that they'd been family suicide. There's stories about euthanasia. Oh, there's stories about really complex mother-daughter relationships. Yeah. You know, estrangement or, you know, mothers they hadn't spoken to for years and then they've found a way back into the relationship. People just wanted to talk after that book. And I was all ears and I feel so grateful for the journey all those readers took me on because it helped me through the whole process. Because once again, you know, I wrote that book to find answers. Like, why did my mother suicide? Um, what was her journey with euthanasia and end of life? Just to recap, she very quickly, she was a, a great supporter of Philip Nitschke. She'd been communicating with him. Um, she uh, suicided uh, after she she had chronic pain, yep. felt like there was no way out. The only way out was to end her life because there were no euthanasia laws in, a, in her jurisdiction then. Um, but she didn't tell us. She didn't tell us, her family, her children, her three children, what she was doing. So it was an enormous shock and... Um, I basically wrote that book to understand what on earth had gone on. There was a police investigation. I was interviewed. I, initially I was under suspicion for aiding my mother's yeah. death. Um, so it was an enormous process to go through. It's like five, six years down the track now. I'm out the other side. Finally I have, it feels like an incredible lightness of being and part of that that process was just writing the book and getting all the really heartfelt compassionate responses to it um it really helped me through but I feel now I've put that away it's 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 a chapter of my life I haven't closed but I've perhaps put it on a bookshelf that's beautiful <laughs> um I think I feel like I've asked so many hard questions I'm gonna I'm gonna finish off with some uh light and fluffy ones sure sure so um quick round um <laughs> what was the last book you read and adored oh look I I, I loved love because I don't read many books now um because I find I'm writing so much and I'm writing my weekly column um mm. and I don't want other people's writing to bleed into my style so I, I really just read poetry a lot now that's my tuning fork because I love beauty in writing but the last novel that I wrote that I absolutely adored Shuggy Bane um the book a winner um you know it was just completely transported by that world and uh the muscularity and the beauty of that prose do you have a particular place where you write or a particular time <laughs> I, of day at which you write? Well, look, I haven't for years. Right. You know, for decades I have just written every everywhere and anywhere. Basically, I've written three books in Starbucks. I wrote one book in a, a private members club in London that I, I, I was fortunate enough to have a membership of and I could just sit there with a pot of tea for like three or four hours. Um, basically... Ever since I've been a mum, I've been a mum for 20 years now, uh, those six hours between school drop-off and school pick-up, that is sacred to me. They are my hours where I just go for it with my laptop, wherever I am. In fact, I've come from a meeting this morning. I had three hours to fill before I came here to Booktopia. Topia, once again, I just sat in a cafe with my laptop and I'm just thinking, oh, my God, where is my laptop? I hope it's out there. It's got my novel in my new novel in it. Well, make sure yeah. it's the yeah. before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I've just left my backpack with my laptop in it somewhere. Oh, no, no, I, I've got an indication that it's out there. Um, so, yeah, I have been used to writing everywhere. But amazingly, my eldest has 
gone to Melbourne to university, which is not the city I live in, all the kids have shuffled round the bedrooms. I finally, at the grand old age of 54, have a room of my own. It has taken me decades. And I will say it's just a sliver of a veranda that's glassed in, but that's where I write. Does the trick. Oh, after decades of writing in cafes and wherever I could and, and, you know, finding plugs and and running out of power and charges and jostling with people to get the desk by the, the plug and the charger, I finally have my own space to write in and it feels glorious except all the other kids are now crashing into it all the time to do their homework yeah. and because they love mummy's sanctuary but anyway <laughs> it's all good listen uh do you do you have one person to whom you trust to read yeah. your writing before anyone else yeah and that's a big one for me because i think writing is all about confidence and your confidence can be so easily destroyed and particularly when i was younger um you know i can remember sending my first novel shiver off to an agent and they rejected it and i thought that's it that's the end of my career i'm never going to be a writer uh it was devastating for me and it was only another female writer i can say helen razor at triple j we were both working at triple j back in the day and she said nikki how ridiculous just, you know, taking one person's opinion on board with your manuscript. Send your manuscript shiver to my publisher, Jane Porfriman at Random House and see what she says. And lo and behold, Jane took it in 24 hours. And I think, you know, it is all about finding the reader you can trust, finding your champion. What one person hates in this industry, another person will love. And so for me, I've been very careful as I've progressed through the writing years to find people who aren't going to break my confidence. And the main person for me is my agent. He's an ex-publisher. Um, and he's great. You know, with some of my books, he's read them and then he's called me into his office. This is in, when I used to live in London. And he sat me down with pages and pages of notes. But basically he said, you know, that protagonist doesn't work or the ending doesn't work or change, tweak the 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 main male character or whatever it is. It doesn't ring true, whatever. And, you know, sometimes I've taken a manuscript away for another six months or so and worked on his suggestions. Out of, out of one meeting? Yeah, yeah, wow. because basically, you know, he would sit me down for yeah. several hours with pages of notes and I would sit opposite him and, and take down notes as he's, and, and then, yeah, go back. And if he said changing, change the ending, then that may take me six months to change the ending. But I trust him and so I usually do it. <laughs> when you finally do have a, a, a finished manuscript mm. and you send it off and it's accepted and it's mm-hmm. all done and in ink, mm. how do you celebrate? Oh my God, it's it's weird. I think I never celebrated as much as my first novel, Shiver, because just the sweetness of getting that box of books arrive, opening the box and then seeing your finished novel. I can remember just stroking the cover of that book and just kind of inhaling it and just, you know, holding it up to my face, wanting to kiss it um, because it was, you know, it was the culmination of a dream that for so many years, I was 30 when that novel was published. I, I never thought I'd be so lucky enough to have a novel published. I still must admit, I still get like that because every book of mine feels like a risk. 
writing is still risky for me. I'm still daring and trying new things and challenging myself and challenging the reader. I'm still like, oh my God, I'm still being published. There's still the wonder and the gratitude for that. So, you know, it was amazing the first time round. With with The Ripping Tree, I will probably celebrate with, you know, a, a block of top deck chocolate or oh, something. <laughs> But it'll still feel great and, and I'll be very grateful. <laughs> and after all these years, um, what's the nicest thing someone said about your writing? Gosh. Um, just that they finished the book. Oh, God. <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous, but my lovely, lovely, wonderful tutor, I, d- I did a, a master's in creative writing at UTS in Sydney and I was so fortunate to have the legendary Glenda Adams who won the, um, I was going to say, the book of the Miles Franklin with Dancing on Coral. And she said to me one day, Nikki, the hardest thing is to get the reader to turn the page. And so I've always thought of that. It's very, very true. You know, you're you're taking the reader on a journey with you and, and you know, it's so easy for them to just toss the book aside and think, oh, no, I can't be bothered. It's just going to lie on the bedside table. And I've got so I've got like eight or ten books stacked on the bedside table, on my bedside table. I always do. So many of them I don't finish or I'll get around to them or whatever. So I think if someone says to me that they've finished the book it's like oh wow that's wonderful you know they they took that time to go with me it's like I I I hold out my hand to them as a writer and they took that hand as a reader as a reader and they went along for the journey with me so that's that's always the best thing that's ever been said to me well if you're still listening um I recommend you (laughs) go for the journey of the ripping tree because It's a ripping read. It really is. Nikki, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Ben. That was lovely. I really appreciate it. (laughs) The Ripping Tree is published by Fourth Estate and is available now from booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget... You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.